All right, brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 11 as we continue our study. We will be looking today at Matthew 11, verse 2 through verse 19. And this comes at a pivotal moment in the ministry of Jesus, the first section of the book, the first section of his ministry has reached its culmination and he's sent out his disciples two by two to do a a training mission, so to speak, to to start getting some practical education in, in how to be a missionary, which is going to be their principal vocation after Pentecost. So Jesus now, his ministry is going to shift a bit. And we noticed at the end of chapter 10, some of the hostility and some of the opposition was was starting to surface. And now in this next section of the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to see that opposition intensify as the enemies of Christ see and begin to perceive increasingly the threat he poses to their system. So... The Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written... Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. 
For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this passage and what it says about who you are and who we expect you to be and who we are and what we are expected to be. Lord, I ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As you know from our study thus far, the Gospel of Matthew is focused on confronting us with the person of Jesus and then confronting us with a question based on this presentation of the person of Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is? And that answer that you give is all determinative. It will shape not only your destiny, the, des- the, the end point of your life and its existence, but it will affect the entire journey. And along that journey, you will encounter, yes, heady, glorious moments of triumph. But you're going to get kicked in the knee a lot. Life is hard, and, and there's a lot of opposition in life, and, and, and you're going to have hard times as you go along this journey. And your understanding of who Jesus is, is absolutely imperative in those moments. Why? Because when you have hardship, and hardship takes many forms, you can expect something to crop up. This something that crops up is called doubt. Doubt is common. It's a, it's a tentative hesitancy that makes us go, was I right? Am I right? Am I sure that I'm sure? Doubt is not unbelief. Some of you may have read the 1976 work by the the great Oz Guinness entitled Doubt. But he astutely notes that doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is not to be equated with unbelief. Rather, doubt is a state of mind held in suspension between belief and unbelief. It believes or, 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 or wants to believe. It, it thinks it believes, but, but it's just not sure. People who doubt are not enemies of the faith. Oftentimes, they're dearly beloved members of the faith community, which is why Jude, the Lord's brother, tells us in Jude 22 to have mercy on those 
who doubt. Now there's the kind of person that we would call a doubter, but by doubter we mean really mocker and scoffer and sort of full-time cynic. And that's what we'll get to at the end. But good, sincere, God-fearing, God-loving people encounter troubles and trials and tribulations and they experience doubt. Many things can trigger it. Suffering, financial setback, bereavement of a loved one, especially a child. But perhaps there are few things that trigger doubt so predictably for a God-fearing, Bible-believing person as when you're fairly sure you've got something figured out, something about God, something about his word figured out. And it doesn't turn out to be that way. Such as, Maybe you've spent your life raising your kids the best you possibly can. Train up a child in the way he should go. And what? When he is old, he will not depart. And you don't reckon that that's a proverb in the inherent nature of the genre. You take it as a, you've taken that as a promise, and preachers have told you that's a promise. And so if the child goes astray, it's because you messed up. And if you would only do it right, the child will turn out. And then so what happens when the child turns away? As so many unfortunately do, at least for a season. Despair. Or I don't, I don't poo-poo the, the, the purity movement of, of the 90s like some. Gee, I'm sorry that you were you know, kept from just throwing yourself around. But, but a lot of people were led to believe that if they just wait for marriage then God's word promises them just almost euphoria. And then it doesn't turn out to be that way. And they thought they had something figured out about God's word, about how God works in the world. And it doesn't turn out that way. Or, or I've heard in my not recent years, I praise the Lord that I have been delivered from the religious tradition where this is a common thing to say, but in my journey of growing up, I have been in many contexts where something like this was said in an, as an evangelistic attempt. Give Jesus a try. You've got nothing to lose. Give Jesus a try. If you don't like him, Satan will take you back. Like Jesus is trying to sell you a new mattress or something. <laughs> now, all these things create expectations. And what happens when whatever expectation that is fails to materialize or just gets, just gets blown up? Here in today's passage, we see someone express a doubt. And his doubt is based upon an expectation. And we see the Lord respond. And we're going to get to what's being said here, but 
just high-level stuff, this passage is glorious. We have John express a doubt. And we have Jesus inform his mind. And we have Jesus gently nudge him back to right belief. But then we have Jesus bless him. Brothers and sisters, it's been erroneously and, and dangerously said that, that you should, it's okay to be angry at God and shake your fist at him or whatever. That's a lie. In the Bible, there's one type of person who does that, and that's the unbeliever. But it is okay to go with him, go to him with your sincere questions and your sincere misunderstandings, your doubts. And I love how Jesus, how Jesus does instruct his mind. He doesn't just give some affirming, you know, mumbo jumbo. He, he takes him to the word, which is where we must go. It's just this glorious picture of how our Savior loves and cares for us. But specifically, though, when it comes to the issue of doubt and expectations that shape and inform those doubts, we see John here asking the question, are, are you the one we are to expect or should we be expecting another? Now, this question is presented after Matthew gives an introductory comment in verse 2 that is pretty cool. It's pretty rare for Matthew to do this. But Matthew notes this. Look at the beginning of verse 2. When John heard in prison about the, de the deeds of Jesus. No. About the deeds of Jesus Christ. No. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. So Matthew is giving us the, he, he's writing from the vantage point of post-Pentecost, Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah. Now, John has heard about these deeds, and who does John say that he is? And well, we know from John's earlier recognition of Jesus that he's the one who singled Jesus out. He called him out that this is the one of whom I said, behold, the Lamb of God. And John's level of apprehension is, is, is somewhat interesting because in, in John chapter 1, we have John say two times that before this moment, he had no idea that Jesus was the Messiah. He had no idea. In fact, he says that it was God who said, the one on whom you see the Holy Spirit descend, that is he. So now we're having John, he's been arrested, he's in prison and Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is just thronged by followers. I'm rotting here in prison, and Jesus is just getting this mass popular following. Is he really the Messiah? Because what was the expectation of John? Well, John was thoroughly Old Covenant. He was absolutely an Old Testament guy. And Matthew records John's message, and from his message, you see a picture of who he expected Jesus to be and what he expected Jesus to, to do. Notice from Matthew 3, he talks to the Pharisees, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. All right, so what was he expecting the Messiah to do? To come and judge the wicked and destroy them. Very Old Testament picture. But yet, he's still in prison. Herod, this godless wretch, is still in charge. Rome is still oppressing. Wicked people are running around doing wicked things. And the word he's received is that, as we noted earlier, Jesus wasn't doing some of the things that they expected a righteous person to do. And he was doing things that they thought a righteous person wouldn't do. So what gives? Was I maybe wrong? That I maybe misunderstand what God had said. And so Jesus, he turns to these disciples of John who have come to pose the question, to express the concern. And Jesus makes a statement that is a, it's, it's a throwing together. He draws allusion to two passages. And I want you to write them down. We're not going to read them. But he draws from Isaiah chapter 35. It's very brief. It's like, like 11 verses. And chapter 61. Most of the content is from 35. And the part about preaching to the poor is from 61. And he doesn't say, as it was said in Isaiah, he doesn't need to. We know from John's own ministry, he cites Isaiah multiple times. He's very familiar with Isaiah. So I can say to you something like, for God so loved the world that. That's right. Okay, and where's that at in the Bible? Oh, great. See how I could just say part of it and you knew the rest of it and you knew basically where it was? That's because you're familiar with it. And John was intimately familiar with Isaiah. So what he says to John is, well, go, go tell John what, what you see. And what is that? That the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers cleanse, deaf hear, dead raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. And in throwing together these verses from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, John would have known the context. He would have understood these are, these are verses describing the blessings of the messianic age. But equally important is what Jesus doesn't include. You see, when you go back and, and look at Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, both of them have in their immediate, in their immediate context, right before, just for example, Isaiah 35, it has the, the message of judgment that had been part and parcel of John's ministry. The expectation that John had for judgment. 
So for example, in Isaiah 35, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Okay, so Jesus is alluding to the signs of the Messianic age. He's saying all these things, but he's leaving out the one thing that John, by virtue of his message, had thought would be the characteristic of the age. In other words, he's saying, John, you were right, but you got the timing off. The Messianic age is here, but the day of judgment is not yet. And then he says to John, after informing his mind, blessed is he who does not fall away on account of me, or blessed is he who is not offended by me. That's a very gentle admonition that don't get distracted by, by what you think or expect me to be doing. John, this is what he's saying between the lines. John, you started well, end well. That's what he's saying. And with that, the disciples of John go away. So we have his doubt expressed, and we see Jesus take him to the word to show him how the age is here. He was right. The the core of his message is from that same group of passages that Jesus cites. It's just that his timing was off in terms of his sense of understanding. The Messiah is here. But then he turns to the crowds, and the crowds you can expect, crowds are always crowds. People are always self-righteous, and you know, it doesn't matter how much of a stalwart this man is, you can almost hear them tisk-tisking the, the, the man John. Oh, how, you know, he, he seems so strong, how could he be such a flake? How could he, how, how could he have doubts? Because don't he know that you're, he's, as a good Christian, you're always supposed to express and exude epistemological certainty? Or whatever. And Jesus, he kind of excoriates them. What did you go out to see? Saying that they had gone out. A reed shaken by, did you expect to find some waif of a man who would, who would blow this way and that and equivocate and, 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 and on every wind of opinion would just, would just bend and, no. Did you expect to see some rich, elegant, well-fed, well-dressed, no. What did you expect? A prophet. And more than a Jesus pronounces incredible blessing upon John here. He's more than a prophet. How could he possibly be more than a prophet? What does that even mean, to be more than a prophet? Well, he he says right here. He tells you why. He says, uh, he's more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. So he's more than a prophet because a prophet does a great job of communicating the word of God. Or to put it another way, a prophet will speak the word of God. But here's a man about whom the word of God speaks. 
You see the difference? He's not just a man speaking God's word. He's a man that the word of God spoke about. So he's more. He's the object of scripture, not just the conveyor of scripture. And then he goes out to say that truly, born of women, I tell you, there's been no one greater than John the Baptist. Verse 11 is absolutely central to this verse, to this passage. Okay, in verse 11, Jesus pronounces phenomenal blessing upon John. No one born of woman is greater. That means everyone who came before is not as great as John the Baptist. What about Abraham? Father Abraham. What about Moses? What about David? Jesus here says that he's greater. What does he mean by that? Well, it's all focused around what John, who he is, and what he came to do. This is he of whom it was said, Behold, I prepare a messenger and send him before you. So John and who he is and what he does is is encapsulated and defined by his mission to identify Christ. His mission to point him out, to introduce Jesus. And all these people who've come before, whether they be Old Testament patriarchs, Old Testament covenant enforcers, Old Testament kings, Old Testament prophets, priests, whatever, all of them pointed to Jesus but they did so without ever seeing Jesus, without ever really understanding who Jesus even was. We, we see this in 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They didn't know. But in the great providence of God, it fell to John to one day be standing there, waist deep in a river, and point to a man on the shore, this is him! And because of that, that of all the people who came before, he is the one who introduced the world to the king. He is the one who identified and witnessed to the person of Christ. It is he. So he's the greatest. But then he says something that really, what's the last half of verse 11? But I tell you, the least one in the kingdom is even greater than he. So, right here in this verse, the same thing, you gotta understand how comparisons work. For for comparisons to work, the, the, the axis of contrast and comparison have to be the same on both sides of the equation. Okay, so what made 
What made John greater? He was the one who identified and bore witness to Jesus. Okay? So on the other side of the equation, what makes even the least of us greater than John, according to Jesus? Well, it has to be the same thing for the, for the comparison to work. You see, we, brothers and sisters, we are not John. John gets his head cut off a few chapters later. Okay? He does not get to see Pentecost. He does not get to see the risen Christ. He doesn't get to see the completed word of God handed down. But guess who does? We do. Understand that, that until, until after the resurrection, these guys were dolts. Like, Jesus repeatedly tells them, I'm going to die and come back to life. But that's like lost on them or something. And so when the resurrection happens, they're not like ready there with a group photo party. Hey, Jesus, we're here. It's a total surprise because they didn't get it. Neither did John. But on this side of Pentecost, guess what? We understand and so we, brothers and sisters, have as the basis of our identity an understanding of who Jesus is, and we bear witness to him, and we identify him as the Savior of the world. He's the one who comes to take away our sin. He's the one who comes to reconcile us to the Father. He's the one who comes to pay for my every offense. He's the one who comes to assure my eternal life. That's who he is. And I bear witness. I can bear witness to these facts in a way that John or Abraham or Moses or David never could because I'm on this side of the resurrection and the ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so are you. As a believer... Your, your core identity is bound up in Christ. This precious, precious doctrine called union with Christ means you are one with your Savior. And where he is, there you will be. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus should be oozing from your mouth and your veins. It's him that saved us. It's him that loves us. It's him that gave himself for us. And so we, brothers and sisters, may face doubts along the way. We face trials along the way. But, but let me anchored that you are his. And he is yours. And you are to bear witness to him in every circumstance. Whether you are plucking chickens turning wrenches or sawing logs or changing diapers or closing multi-million dollar deals, whatever you're doing in whatever context you are, you belong to Jesus. And you are to identify him and bear witness to him 
in every aspect of life. Because there's no one greater. He is the king. But these people, though, we see these these chronic doubters debunked. And he's going to go on to it in the next section with tremendous force. But these chronic doubters, these aren't like John with sincere questions. These are the people that that Jesus talks about who are like those those atheists that like to present themselves as intellectually honest. Oh, I want to believe. I just need someone to give me one piece of evidence and I'll believe. Never mind every single piece of evidence they just refuse to believe. You know the type. These are the ones who went out to see a prophet because, whoa, John is doing something. And, and his austerity was a huge turnoff. And his message was, whew, uh, he's got a demon or something. He's, he's, he's got some trouble. He's oppressed by the devil. He's crazy or something. And then Jesus comes on the, on the total opposite extreme of the spectrum, right? And Jesus is accused of being a party animal, essentially. Not that he was, but that's what he's accused of being. And they do the same thing to John and the same thing to Jesus that they do to everybody. Whenever there's a message they don't like, they always try to find offense with the messenger. That's what they do. That's what people do. But the point is this, whether we're singing a dirge or singing a a joyful tune, whether the message came with austerity and, and gravitas or with levity and joy, you won't believe. You won't receive it. You refuse. And as we'll learn in the next section, then therefore there is nothing for those left but wrath. Both John and his old covenant model and Jesus introducing the new covenant and us following Christ as his disciples, bearing witness to the glories of his name. We are to proclaim the excellencies of his kingdom, but recognize that there will always be opposition. That's what verse 12 is telling us. From the time of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. That verse is really hard to translate because Jesus spoke in a tense that could mean that the kingdom of God is forcefully growing or that it's been subjected to violence and then on the back end it could mean that that it's courageously being uh, taken by, by people who believe or that it's being subjected to attack. It's hard to know how to translate that. The best exegetes will tell you this. But in terms of sheer percentage of times where these different constructions are used in the Bible, if we're going to say that Jesus is using the times that occur the most to apply here, then what this is saying is that from the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of God has been forcefully advancing. That the kingdom is spreading But violent men have been opposing it. The words on the back end that uh, violent take it by force, those the violent ones take it by force, are almost always used to denote evil intent. So this isn't talking about the, the, the Carmen song, you know, the charismatics who think they're warriors for Jesus. No, that's not it. 
This is about evil intent. So what Jesus is saying is here, the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing, but godless men fight it tooth and nail, which is what, which is what he was experiencing. And that's a picture, that's a snapshot of what, of what we're going to experience till the end of the age. The rest of the New Testament spells out this, this glimpse of, a, of the church militant, that the kingdom will forcefully advance, it will break in, and the devil can't restrain it, but that doesn't mean there's no opposition And so perseverance is called for. But know that you do so as one whom is beloved and is viewed by God as even greater than John because you apprehend and witness to Christ in the fullness of truth. So brothers and sisters, we will have doubts. Let Jesus and his model of of interacting and correcting John's doubt show you how we ought to tenderly respond to the well-intentioned doubts of our brothers and sisters. Take them to the word. Show them where, where maybe an expectation wasn't quite right. Or maybe they had half a picture in mind. And tweak, tweak. But don't smash. But recognize that we do so And we exist in this age from the vantage point of of God as awesomely beloved, awesomely privileged. Will we be faithful? And will we acknowledge before the world the testimony that we believe, namely that he is the Christ? Let's pray. Almighty God, I thank you for this passage, for dealing so tenderly with John and his questions, for calling out the crowds for their persistent refusal to believe, for the wondrous truth that you reveal here, that because of our apprehension and testimony of you, we have even greater word to tell about you than even Moses. Wow. Grant, Lord, that we would be faithful, that just as our core identity is to be a witness to you, that we would take that up as one of our chief functions. Grant that you would hold us close, and that when the day of trouble comes upon us and we have our doubts, that we would be willing to be reformed by Scripture, and that we would, as brothers and sisters, lovingly reform those in need of it. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.